Welcome to episode 96 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us for lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Senator Tom Cotton, uh, who sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Banking Committee, and Armed Services Committee, uh, um, a very prominent uh, uh, new senator from Arkansas. Uh, in addition, uh, for our news roundup, we have Michael Vadis formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, uh, and Maury Shank, former managing partner of our London office uh, uh, and an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, a private equity investor and uh, man of parts. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump to this uh, it looks as though after years of talking about uh, cyber uh, Pearl Harbors and the like, uh, uh, that uh, the Russians may well have finally hacked an electric grid. Uh, uh, the Ukrainians uh, have uh, demonstrated uh, uh, intrusions into their networks uh, that um, are being widely blamed for shutting off power in large chunks of the Ukraine. Uh, Michael, did you look at this? Uh, yeah, but I would put the emphasis on the word may in your statement since there's nobody in the government uh, reporting on the record and we have a few cybersecurity companies reporting this. I don't, I don't know if you've seen a more wide reporting than I have, but uh, you know, we, we've seen this before where people blame a cyber attack and then it turns out to be uh, something less malicious. So, you know, I guess I, I would reserve judgment till we know more. Yeah, it's pretty clear that the uh, from the reports I've seen from the uh, cybersecurity companies that this was a uh, uh, piece of malware that we've seen before that the cyber security companies have associated with Russia in the past. It was uh, used to break into a lot of U.S. Uh, uh, grid companies. Uh, and it had a capability to both wipe people's disks and to take action against uh, uh uh, sensors uh, in a uh, an industrial control system, uh, um, so it it certainly had the capability to shut down a uh, a grid. And since the grid shut down before they found this, uh, uh, that's reasonably compelling information. Uh, and and uh, apparently, Ukrainian nationalists blew up some pylons and cut off Crimea from power and the, uh, the, the Russia is having to build on an emergency basis uh, a, a set of transmission lines from Russia because the Ukrainians somehow can't get them uh, uh, repaired in time. Uh, so you can imagine somebody thinking that this was uh, uh, turnabout was fair play in this case. If, uh, if the Ukrainians were going to cut off their power, maybe they'd cut off the Ukrainians' power. Yeah, but I don't think this meets Donald Trump's standard for uh, holding Vladimir Putin responsible for anything. Are you um, kidding? It's you huge. Know, it's are, huge. Good buds. <laughs> uh, you may be right, but uh, uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, anything meets that standard. He's such a charmer by uh, the Donald's uh, uh, standards. Uh, okay, um, U.S. Uh, 
firms have gone to the UK and given uh, uh, the British government a lot of free advice about things they shouldn't do with their law uh, on technology and terrorism. Uh, uh, it's getting a lot of coverage here, but exactly what it is that they are telling the UK government to do or not to do wasn't completely clear. So I thought I'd ask Maury, uh, uh, what does this amount to? Well, Stuart, I agree there's a lot of misinformation in the press about this, and even the, com- the U.S. companies who went to the U.K. Um, government, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Twitter, and Yahoo, are complaining that the, the two top things they've complained about are things that clearly already exist under U.K. law, extraterritorial jurisdiction to issue a warrant for things that ha- uh, affect the U.K. but was done by a non-U.K. company, and the right of the U.K. government to ask for uh, assistance with decryption. So it seems like this is being used as a bit of a target to say, uh, we don't like broad surveillance, um, and maybe they don't want to criticize as aggressively at home, or maybe they want to be seen as criticizing everywhere. But it's not really about this new legislation as much as the press is saying. So it's it, it's it's basically an opportunity to uh, uh, put a marker down to say we didn't like it when you said this and uh, we don't like it uh, uh, when you try to uh, um, establish it as a matter of legislative language. Yes, I I think so. I mean, the, some of the things they're saying are more changes in the new legislation. There's um, some language on bulk collection and hacking by the government that there is existing authority for, but this clarifies it. The one thing that's clearly new in this legislation is retention of people's Internet connection records they haven't complained about. So, yes, I think overall it's just a chance to talk about um, government surveillance. All right. Um, the, the, um, the U.S., government, half the government, uh, the half that wasn't already working for Silicon Valley uh, after leaving government has gone out to Silicon Valley to ask them to do something about uh, terrorism, ISIS recruitment and the like uh, with San Bernardino and um, some of the other kind of uh, onesie-twosie attacks by people who clearly were kind of quasi-self-radicalized by contacts with uh, with ISIS and others. Uh, um, and everybody says it was a good a, a good discussion um, and and not as contentious as in the past, but you'd expect that. Uh, I wouldn't have uh, been contentious if I were looking at a bunch of attacks in the inside the United States. Uh, um, uh, Michael, do you think anything has really come out of that that... Uh, will make a difference in dealing with uh, self-radicalization and terrorist uh, recruitment in the United States? Well, I don't know if anything came out of it yet, but I think there's a decent chance something may. I mean, the companies are in a difficult position because they don't want to be put in the in the position of, of having to uh, scour their own social media sites or apps or other communications uh, uh, technologies in order to look for terrorists or individuals who may be on the route to becoming terrorists. But at the same time, they don't want their services to be used by terrorists uh, with impunity because if something, another San Bernardino happens and it's tied to, you know, uh, a certain social media company, it's going to look pretty bad. 
Uh, and, you know, they do engage in voluntary efforts now to look for child pornography. Uh, Facebook has a method for looking uh, or for, for people to flag other users who look like they might be suicidal. So I think those are the models that, that are probably under discussion uh, from both sides. Uh, you know, so I think the, the end goal is going to be something that's voluntary, but still somewhat effective in, in uh, flushing out uh, potential terrorists or people who are on the road towards radicalization. So I've been, I've been thinking about this a little, and, and, and I'll probably write it up at some point, uh, um, beginning with the proposition that uh, uh, the Secret Service – uh, when they're worried about uh, people who've made threats against the president, uh, uh, invariably, no matter how lame the threat, will go to them and sit down with the person who made the threat and say, you know, this is kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, dangerous thing to be doing. What's the problem? And they'll have a very polite, non-threatening and detailed discussion with the person about um, what they intended, because uh, a lot of these threats are just, you know, somebody popping off. Uh, and many of the people who've had those conversations say, yeah, it was a, it was a good conversation. Uh, uh, and others probably have been warned off that uh, basically they're no longer anonymous to the government. Uh, and we don't do that as much in terrorism stuff, uh, but it seems to me that, that there's room for a uh, an approach in which, probably not voluntarily, but but maybe with subpoenas. Um, we went to the uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the social media and said we'd like you to, to identify the people who are engaged in retweeting and uh, recycling uh, uh, hardcore terrorist stuff uh, so that we can sit down with them and have that conversation. Um, or, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is where I, I, I suggest that instead of a bomb squad, we need a mom squad. Uh, since you can tell from social media that the, uh, uh, who the guys relatives and connections are, uh, and it's a reasonable bet that uh, whatever these guys are retweeting, they ain't sending to their moms, uh, maybe you send out a team of people who sit down with their closest relatives who aren't crazy uh, and say, you know, look at this stuff that your son or brother or uh, um, uh, significant other is saying to people other than you, it's pretty disturbing and we're troubled by it. Because uh, uh, I think if you want to invoke social pressure against uh, radicalization, you ought to go where the social pressure is most likely to be felt. So that's, that's my latest idea for things that the uh, Silicon Valley and the White House could do together to try to cut back on terrorism. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a good idea for, for how you um, may approach people that you suspect of, of being potential terrorists. But the question is, how do you, how do you identify them? Uh, and under are you what kidding? Are you kidding? This, these social media guys know whether I'm in the market for a Chevy. They certainly ought to know whether I'm in the market for a suicide bombing. Yeah, but how do you get that information to the government consistent with the Constitution? Um, you can't use a subpoena to get content. Why not? You're going to have to use a search warrant. Oh, I see. Why not? Because it's, yeah. it's okay. protected right. by the Fourth Amendment. So you could say, uh, uh, we'd like you to um, uh, give us the names but not the content of people who meet the following criteria. 
and uh, list a whole bunch of criteria about, you know, they're retweeting ISIS and they're uh, um, uh, uh, displaying uh, uh, videos. We don't need to see the videos. We don't need to know which videos. We just need to know. I think that would still have tremendous constitutional difficulties, uh, at the very least under the First Amendment. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of gray area between... Uh, between, you know, actively engaging in support of terrorism or planning for terrorism and engaging in political speech that's, you know, adverse to U.S. political interests. And, you know, someone mouthing off uh, about anti-U.S. policies or giving a statement in support of ISIS, I don't think is actionable uh, necessarily. It's not it's not a crime. Uh, and it's certainly not uh, in, engaging in incitement of, of violence. Um, sometimes it may be, but there are a lot of statements that won't be. And I think that's that's a hard standard to to impose on private companies and say, all right, whenever you think someone is is retweeting in favor of ISIS, you need to tell us. Okay, so good thing I didn't write this down. I need, it needs work, but I <laughs> I just think there's there's something there. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, the companies could do it on their own. They could say, uh, "Do you know what your son is doing? Come on, really?" Because uh, uh, they can do that. Uh, uh, they just couldn't pass it on to the government. I don't think they're going to do that. Um, although, frankly, when you look at the other tools they have, you know. Taking away the, your verification check or uh, um, banning you, uh, it, it might actually be uh, more effective to uh, to say, okay, we're turning you into mom. Uh, hey. Yeah, no, I, you know there there are a lot of there are a lot of things I, I you know the citizen and parent in me would like to see uh, social media companies do, and, and that would include monitoring uh, the communications of teenagers who may go up and shoot a school shoot up a school. Uh, you know, and there's, it seems like every school shooting, there were enough signs uh, that if anyone were paying attention or, you know, had the, the courage to come forward, it could have been stopped. Uh, and so, you know, and those are far more frequent than, than terrorist attacks in the United States. So, you know, I think there, this is a broader problem than just trying to identify terrorists. Uh, excuse me. Um, uh... My daughter apparently has been listening to the uh, uh, show, and uh, she wants to talk to me about my retrograde views. So I got to go shortly. Um, Let's move on to um, the Volkswagen case. I I, I love this case. Uh, um, Volkswagen uh, obviously was uh, uh, systematically lying to EPA and regulators around the world about the um, emissions of its uh, um, uh, of its uh, diesel engines, uh, and uh, they're under uh, ferocious scrutiny in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and states uh, asked for detailed information from them uh, about uh, uh, the communications that led up to the. Uh, 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 the decision to implement this code, uh, and uh, VW has said, oh, I, we'd love to comply, but you see, we have these German privacy laws, and they don't allow us to comply with your subpoenas, um, which, of course, fits nicely with my prejudice, which is that uh, privacy always protects the privileged, and this is just one more example of it, but uh, um, uh, let me ask Maury, you're close to data protection law in Europe. How do they uh, justify saying they're not going to comply with the uh, actual legal process uh, because of the uh, German privacy laws? 
Well, my assumption is, and privacy law is designed from the non-cynical point of view to protect individuals, and so their theory would probably be something like, you know, disclosing this information could hurt these individuals, and we don't have their consent to do it, uh, and um, therefore we're not going to do it. But there are lots of exceptions, public interest exceptions to privacy law. There are exceptions about uh, legal obligations, defense of legal claims. VW, if they wanted to disclose this information, almost certainly could make a good argument that it fits within those exceptions. So they're really using privacy law almost as a right against self-incrimination here. It seems to me if they were dealing with a, a German court, they wouldn't be able to make these arguments. It's probably the subtext is if these requests are coming from the U.S., it's sort of illegitimate. Yeah, and, that's... Uh, but I, I think it's it's weak. That's what I thought, it, is that if they actually have to explain themselves, they are only going to enrage uh, 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 political and legal actors in the United States. It's, uh, if they were to say, we're not going to give that information because it's for private information of our employees and we believe that you uh, are in violation of the human rights standards that uh, European law requires, therefore we don't have to obey any of your discovery orders, uh, it's going to be hell to pay. Well, they, they could also yeah. be simply, they may simply be arguing under U.S. law that, that the American subs in the U.S. don't have possession, custody, or control of uh, documents or records of communications held by the parent in the EU, and therefore they're, they're under no legal obligation uh, to go get the, the uh, information from their parent. Oh, okay, so your, your, your argument would be... But that we, wouldn't be a privacy objection. Yeah, well, yeah, no, think of it this way. They dress it up with, they dress it up with privacy, but you also say, you know, hey, even if I, even if there were no privacy, uh, objections in, in the EU, we don't have possession, custody, or control, therefore we can't get it. Yes, and, and, and then the, 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 the folks in Wolfsburg say, um, we would love to cooperate. We're totally cooperative, but, uh, for us to volunteer this would be a violation of uh, data protection law. If you had a binding order, then, of course, we'd comply, but you don't because you don't have jurisdiction over us. I think that's going to be shaky because uh, I'm willing to bet they have um, uh, sufficient contacts with the United States to have su uh, submitted to U.S. jurisdiction. But I, it, it does seem to me that the more they try to explain this, the worse it's going to get for them. Well, it's, it's probably there's a long history as, of. It, it's probably not as bad as what they're trying to hide, <laughs> which you know they'll probably take whatever sanctions um, that the U.S. court will mete out because I can only imagine what what it is that they're trying to hide. So maybe this is an opportunity. There's a long history of privacy law being used to um, to defeat reasonable or reasonable claims. The one I that's most frequently cited in the U.K. is in 2003, British Gas turned off the electricity of a, an elderly couple, and, and they died in, um, in a very cold winter, and they said that privacy law forbid them from telling social services about it, which is always held up as the ridiculous assertion of a privacy claim here. Um, this VW one isn't quite so bad, but it, it reminds me it's not that far away. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll hear about this one some more, I'm sure. Uh, let's do some 
quickies. Uh, uh, just as Michael predicted, the Justice Department has moved to uh, uh, moot Judge Leon and uh, 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 Larry Clayman's uh, um, victory over NSA's 215 program. So we're going to see a fight over whether uh, the uh, expiration of the law that uh, gave rise to that uh, makes the entire opinion moot. Anything to add to that, Michael? No, I, 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 it's going to be hard to see how Larry Klayman, uh wins this one. I, I, I predict the court will rule that it's moot. All right. Uh, NSA's new general counsel, Glenn Gerstel, has uh, produced his first public statement, an op-ed for uh, lawfare, appropriately enough, uh, and the person who's happiest about it, I think, is Ted Cruz, uh, because uh, he ended up saying pretty much what Ted Cruz said during the debate. Uh, uh, the new program uh, uh, will cover more uh, uh, pr- uh, more uh, uh, communications, and uh, we'll be reporting uh, on our ability to uh, uh, gather that information uh, efficiently, but we think we can and that's pretty much what, what Cruz said when uh, he was fighting with Rubio over whether the uh, old program should be revived. Uh, oh, here's one. Uh, the FBI uh, uh, is taking criticism from the usual sources, which is defense counsel, for its investigations, very effective uh, investigation of a child porn site in which they basically took over the child porn site and kept it running while they collected all the IP addresses of everybody who was logging in. Uh, um, Michael, do you think that there's a problem with their having done so? We, you know, I, this is a tough one to comment on because all we have at this point are the allegations of the defendant who's seeking to throw out the, the indictment on the basis of, of what he calls outrageous conduct by the government in, in, keeping, in allegedly keeping this child porn site running. But the government's response is, is under seal, so we have no idea whether these allegations uh, are factually um, accurate or, or not. It, yeah, yeah. If they were factually accurate and, and the government were actually continuing to allow the spread of child pornography in order to catch uh, people who were users of this, that, that would strike me as uh, rather shocking. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to um, uh, give credence to uh, just on the, on the face of the allegations. All right. And my last uh, 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 item uh, is, is just too delicious for words, literally. Uh, uh, as everybody knows who has ever read a, a website that uh, is based in the European Union, the, the EU in its um, uh, moral majesty uh, decided that uh, cookies were dubious and because they uh, uh, collected personal information had to receive uh, consent and that meant a consent every time you went to the damn site. You had to click something that says, I understand you're collecting cookies. Um, a, and, you know, that was just a kind of mildly insufferable uh, action by European regulators. But it has the cost of making us all used to the idea that there's going to be something that pops up every time we go to a European site that we have to click yes on just to get the damn thing off the uh, the screen. Uh, and malware uh, writers have taken advantage of that to write programs that basically 
purport to say, do you mind if we uh, uh, collect cookies, uh, uh, but which really are saying, do you mind if we run a bunch of malware in the background while you're reading this site? Uh, uh, and so predictably, uh, what just looked like a stupid move by the Europeans is now turning into a security disaster. Well, we're now going to turn to uh, our interview uh, uh, and um, uh, with uh, Tom Cotton, one of the newest senators uh, and um, uh, from Arkansas, a Harvard on Harvard grad and a grad of both Afghanistan and Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, yeah, sorry, military service. I guess you could put it that way. John McCain says, I redeemed myself after Harvard by joining the Army. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the real question is, how much, which was the tougher fight, trying to graduate from uh, Harvard with your views or uh, uh, survive Afghanistan? I think the best, the best way to come out of Harvard as a conservative is probably to go in as one, which I, I did, thanks to my brain. But... Iraq and Afghanistan were definitely tougher fights. Well, and you you ended up working for Chuck Cooper for a brief time, uh, who I did. was he was a law clerk uh, my year uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, and he for sure went in as a conservative. Yes, yeah. I, uh, so I, I got out of law school uh, right after the 9/11 attacks happened. I graduated in 2002, so they happened in the fall of my third year, and I wanted to join right away. But a lot of my friends who were already in the army discouraged me from joining uh, with law school loans. Uh, and a lieutenant or a private salary. Yeah. So I clerked for uh, a year for Jerry Smith down on the Fifth Circuit, and then I worked uh, at both Gibson Dunn and Crutcher and Cooper and Kirk and repaid my loans and left and joined the Army. Oh. And Mike Pompeo got them to pay for his law school, didn't they? Did he really? Well, I think he went. He's, he's well, a smart, he's a smart man <laughs> you know, he's first. You know, he's first in his class at West Point. He, yeah, and uh, Harvard Law Review as well. He was. Uh, wow, he's, a, he's an impressive guy. Yeah, uh, and the only other member of Congress who has been uh, interviewed on the podcast. So uh, you're in good company. Yeah. Uh, let me jump right in. Uh, Two fifteen. The NSA uh, uh, metadata program. Uh, uh, was put to bed by the USA Freedom Act and then almost immediately roused from its sleep by San Bernardino. Uh, uh, we were shutting down the program that week. Uh, and you put forward uh, legislation to extend it. Uh, um, where do you think the debate over 215 is going? Well, I, I think the rise of the Islamic State uh, in general and specifically the attacks in San Bernardino as well as Paris uh, have reminded a lot of people, both in Washington and around the country, that we'll, we are still at war against radical Islamic terrorists uh, who are actively plotting to try to attack us here at home and to hurt our interests abroad, uh, whether that's through a directed attack or through an inspired attack. And, uh, you know, if that debate were held today, I'm not sure the Freedom Act would pass. Mm -hmm. um, but to give you an instance of the challenge that our government has now under the Freedom Act, um, there's five years of data that remains under the old system. Which the, we can't look at. Where the government collected bulk data. Uh, and, and independent of the Freedom Act, President Obama has imposed a restriction of only two years uh, of look-back period in that data. Well, we now know that the San Bernardino shooters were radicalized at least three years ago, yet our intelligence mm -hmm. professionals are unable to look at that data. I, for one, would like to know who they were talking to in that time period. I bet most Arkansans and most Americans would as well. More broadly, I, I, I oppose the Freedom Act strongly because the 215 program, uh, well before it was exposed by Edward Snowden in 2013, 
was fully briefed by, uh, to Congress, both intelligence committees and the House and the Senate leadership. It was constitutional under existing Supreme Court precedent. Uh, it was carefully overseen not only by the intelligence committees, but also by the federal courts. There's probably not an intelligence program that was more carefully overseen. And then Edward Snowden disclosed it. There was a lot of misinformation about what uh, the program did. Many Americans were misled uh, by certain people into thinking that it was collecting all content of telephone calls or emails or what have you uh, of normal law-abiding American citizens, when in fact that's not the case, as you and most of your listeners probably know, is simply collecting the metadata, what you, the basic data you see in, say, your phone bill, mm-hmm. the call to, from, the date, the time, the duration of the call. It's the proverbial haystack that you have to have if you want to find the needle in the haystack. And now the program that replaced it, in my opinion, is going to be less effective, uh, slower, and ultimately uh, could could contribute to the kind of intelligence gaps that led to 9-11. So I, I, I was very interested that this exchange pretty much is what uh, went on on the uh, in the Republican debate uh, uh, in which uh, uh, Ted Cruz said, uh, yes, uh, there are reasons to be concerned about the Freedom Act, but the fact is that the Freedom Act gives us access to more call data, uh, and the intelligence community says that it's going to be just as effective. Uh, um, and that's pretty much what Glenn Gerstle said, the, the new GC of the NSA in his uh, maiden op-ed. Uh, uh, I've got to tease him. I didn't know he was a cruise man. But uh, um, what do you say to that, that, that we will get well, more. So I, I've read Mr. Gerstel's op-ed. Um, it, it may or may not be true that the government now has access to more data. I don't want to specify. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would only be the result of a policy decision by the executive branch. To the extent that there was less data accessible under the Patriot Act and there's more data accessible under the Freedom, the Freedom Act, that is purely because of executive branch policy decisions. The, the new law did not alter the scope so of it the was, previous law at all. Uh, to, to put a finer point on it, they were um, deterred from asking for more because of a fear that there'd be even more of a, of a scandal or an uproar if they did it, and so they let themselves slowly get there less. There are no, no statutory constraints uh, that, were, that were lifted. These, you're talking about policy decisions. And then second, as to its effectiveness, I have my... Real doubts. I believe Admiral Rogers, the director of the NSA, has expressed some of those doubts in public settings. Um, but just as a common sense matter, if telephone companies are holding this data as opposed to the government itself, it stands to reason it will, of course, take longer to search the data anytime you have a terrorist attack that's occurred, as we did in San Bernardino, or you suspect an attack may be about to occur and you want to stop it. I mean, it's like storing stuff in your closet versus your attic versus a storage unit across town. I mean, it just takes longer time. There's more cumbersome procedures in place when the government itself doesn't control that data. And a lot of your listeners know, you know, that general counsels at major publicly traded corporations can be very risk averse. Some of them may be those general counsels. Right. And dealing, having to deal with the telephone companies uh, on a uh, case by case basic will just intrinsically be more cumbersome and slower, I believe, than if the government itself held the data. And, And I've met with the men and women who ran that program. Mm-hmm. And not Mike Rogers, right. the admiral in charge of the NSA, not John Brennan at the CIA, but the men and women, you know, the GS 8s, 9s, 10s, and so forth that, that ran that program. And in many ways, they're just like you and I. You know, they get up and they go to work and they go home. They're worried about kicking, picking their kid up at music recitals or at soccer practice or what have you. But it, throughout the day, they're working 
very diligently to try to keep our country safe. And I have the utmost faith uh, in their scruples and their integrity. Uh, and they don't have a profit motive to use that data either, the way companies do when they retain it. So you're, you're on the Intelligence Committee. Um, what kind of oversight of the implementation of the new 15 program is there going to be? How, how, when are we going to hear whether it's working as well or close to as well as the old program? Well, we've had briefings already, and I've had conversations uh, with executive branch officials. I don't want to get into the details uh, of those uh, matters, uh, nor do I know exactly what will or will not be publicly disclosed. But I'll say this, um, to the extent that the administration uh, you know, speaks in a less than clear fashion about the effectiveness of the new program, I will point out that that is in fact the case, even if we can't discuss the details. So the other, the, the next fight coming up is over the 702 program that gives us access to transiting or uh, uh, one end in the U.S. communications uh, where we're targeting uh, uh, foreigners. Uh, um, there's already indications in the privacy community, uh, um, the P Club, uh, the President's Commission on uh, Civil Liberties and uh, Oversight Board, sorry, uh, the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, um, that they have concerns about 702 and that data. Um, it looks as though there's going to be a fight over that. Uh, um, what's, what's the Intelligence Committee doing to try to shape that fight? Well, so, so Section 702 expires next year in 2017. I propose legislation that, among other things, would make 702 permanent. Mm -hmm. I think the Congress should have done that a long time ago. Um, but what you're talking about here is, is foreign to foreign communications. Because of the way modern communications infrastructure are built, those communications may go through the United States. I don't think we should view that as a risk to the privacy of foreigners. Right. I think we should view it as an opportunity to collect intelligence on bad guys all around the world who want to do harm to Americans. As a senator and all my colleagues as a Congress have a responsibility to the American people. Foreigners don't have constitutional rights under our constitutional system. We shouldn't intrude upon foreigners' privacy unnecessarily, but at the same time, we don't have to account for the rights that American citizens have under our Constitution when we're trying to collect foreign intelligence from two foreign persons who may in fact be plotting attacks against the United States or our citizens or interests abroad. And we're just lucky enough to have them doing it through the U.S. Well, it's just another example of how our, our global leadership position, not only on security matters but economic matters as well, uh, helps the United States to protect our interests and to protect our citizens' lives. So industry's worry in this is that, and they've seen it in the uh, safe harbor uh, discussions where the European Court of Justice said, we don't trust American standards of um, uh, privacy protection, and therefore data can't be sent to the United States, which means that a lot of that data potentially is at risk of never getting here and not being available for um, uh, surveillance. Uh, um, how do you respond to the concerns of industry that says, the more we talk about this, the more aggressive we are about it, the more likely it is that um, uh, other countries are going to try to cut us off by cutting off uh, our company's capabilities. Well, many, many of those countries are the very same companies that, countries that come to us begging us for intelligence about the threat of attacks in their own uh -huh. uh, territory. Uh, unfortunately, this issue of the safe harbor uh, and European data protections uh, is another piece of fallout from the Snowden uh, disclosures. Um, under the safe harbor going back, I think, 20 years, 
there was no dispute that the United States provided adequate protection under EU standards. And there was a ruling of the European Court of Justice just a few months ago that said that's not the case. Well, part of the challenge we face is we're dealing with Eurocrats who sit in Brussels who don't have responsibility for protecting the safety and security of each country's citizens. I believe if we were able to work on a government-to-government basis with countries like the United Kingdom and France and Poland and so forth, we'd make a lot more headway. Even the Germans would be easier to deal with if we were dealing with them with their security services in the room. Well, when you deal with an interior minister or head of an intelligence service, they live every single day the kinds of threats and responses that our NSA director or CIA director or director of national intelligence does. So we're going to have to work directly with those countries that rely on us so heavily to ensure that we can continue to, that our companies here in the United States can continue to serve their customers in Europe and get access to that data and that they're not engaged in what's essentially trade protectionism to try to, for example, keep more tech and data processing work in Europe. There's at least a couple of ways we could do that. One is to tell these countries that depend on our intelligence collection that if they want to continue to receive intelligence, then they need to work out either bilaterally with us or through the EU as members of the EU a new safe harbor agreement. Or two, we could include it in part of the massive TTIP trade negotiations that are going on. I know European countries don't want to include those provisions in the TTIP negotiations, but we can insist upon it because, of course, we have a lot of leverage in those negotiations. I think both of those ought to be on the table. The fact that it isn't is a reflection of the fact that we haven't treated this data protection, data embargo seriously as a threat, but it's serious now for sure. It is very serious. It hasn't gotten much attention in the American media. It hasn't even gotten that much attention, frankly, in the Congress. But it does pose a genuine risk not only to our national security, but also to our tech industry having a fair and level playing field to compete in Europe. What do you think are the prospects that we'll actually get a deal? Because, of course, the intelligence community is part of the negotiation with the European Commission, and they're working against an end-of-January deadline. If you had to give odds, what would you give as the odds? Well, I wouldn't hazard a guess on the odds, but I would say that this interim agreement since the ECJ decision back in October could be extended again, as often happens in these trade negotiations. So I'm not sure how firm the end-of-January deadline is. I'd rather get it right than get it fast. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. The other issue that technology companies are really interested in and very vocal on is Jim Comey's going dark concerns, the fear that encryption is going to have a serious impact on our ability to catch or maybe to solve crimes after the fact. And it's amazing how this issue will not die. The president, after a long process, decided, I think he chose between not proposing legislation now and not proposing legislation and decided not to propose legislation. But that did not end the debate. Where do you see it going and where do you stand? I want to know if the Intelligence Committee is going to work on this going dark issue in this calendar year. Senator Burr and Senator Feinstein have both committed to that. Jim Comey gave a very good example of the challenge we faced. There was an attack in Garland, Texas by ISIS-inspired persons. 
and they sent, I think, 109 uh, different uh, messages that the FBI to this day can't access seven months later because they were encrypted. There's no way to access that. I mean, wouldn't we want our law enforcement professionals to have access to that? This is much bigger than just intelligence and terrorism as well. I mean, child molesters and pedophiles and drug dealers and financial fraudsters can all use the same kind of encryption to avoid valid law enforcement searches that have been authorized by a federal court. We don't let telephone companies build systems that are impervious to eavesdropping. If the FBI has probable cause and they get a warrant from a federal judge that says, yes, you can eavesdrop on the conversations of Stuart Baker or Tom Cotton mm -hmm. and build a case, whatever it may be, child uh, pornography or drug trafficking or financial fraud, the telephone companies have to maintain an infrastructure that allows that. I think we have to have a conversation, both in our Congress and our society, about whether we want to permit companies to create specifically designed encrypted systems that are not susceptible to valid law enforcement uh, searches under third-party warrants. So and I don't think many American I don't think many Americans appreciate the extent of the problem, um, and if they did, they would demand that Congress act upon it. So I, I was I was around for Calio when uh, uh, we decided we were going to apply that the requirement for wiretap capability to uh, cell phones, uh, which had not been wiretappable uh, up, up to then. What you'll hear from the tech companies is, if we put in a backdoor or a hole or something that will exploit this, it will have a couple of effects. First, people won't trust us and they won't buy our products, uh, and second. Uh, it'll turn out to be a backdoor that is used first by other governments and then by criminals. So uh, we will be reducing the security of our users. Well, if you listen to what uh, Jim Comey has said, he puts it simply. He doesn't want a backdoor, he wants a front door. Mm -hmm. He wants a front door with at least two keys. Um, and the government won't be able to access uh, any kind of encrypted system without a lawful uh, warrant or under due, uh, due process. Uh, and the company won't be able to either. I think that's um, you know, a reasonable way to design the system. I mean, I'm not a, a, a computer programmer, but I know that the professionals in our intelligence community believe that it can be done. Um, and our intelligence community, if, if they thought that this was going to minimize use of American-based systems and drive use offshore and therefore limit their access when they do have a valid warrant or when they have followed uh, due uh, process, I don't think they'd be recommending it. They're not doing that. And at root, I have faith in our tech community's products and services. There's a reason why people like to use Apple products, or why mm -hmm. they like to use Google, or why they like to use Facebook. And simply because we apply the same standards to those tech companies as we have applied to telephone companies, I don't think people around the world are going to start stop using the world uh, leader in uh, pro data products and services. So. Um I, I think you may well be right that if Americans had this issue kind of right in front of them and understood all the consequences, they're more likely to uh, agree with Jim Comey than uh, uh, with others. Um, but that's not where we are now. Right now, the people who know the most about this are the most opposed to, to doing something. Um, where do you think Congress is going to go with this? Is, are we going to end up waiting for some disaster before we uh, address well, the issue? Well, that's what I hope to avoid, is that it doesn't take uh, you know a mass casualty terrorist attack, or for that matter, some horrific uh, child pornography or pedophilia uh, sting in which uh, that could have been prevented with access to encrypted data once law enforcement had a valid search warrant or had followed due process. I know on the Intelligence Committee, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike 
are both attuned to this problem and they want to solve it. So I'm hopeful that we can reach a bipartisan solution that will give law enforcement the tools they need to overcome the going dark problem, while also keeping encryption as a viable option for the law-abiding citizens, the vast majority of law-abiding citizens who are using Android phones or iPhones or what have you that contain their financial information and their health records and sensitive emails and text messages and so forth. So some of the some of the most outspoken opponents of, of uh, this and people who are most enthusiastic about the Freedom Act uh, are recently elected Republicans. It's, it's it, this is this is by no means a partisan issue. Uh, it divides both parties and ironically unites the, the bases of both parties in some ways. Uh, where do you think, the, what do you think the future of the issue is for the Republican Party? Do you think it's with the libertarian critique of uh, the National Security Agency or with the people who believe in security? Well, the Republican Party has always been the party of a strong national defense and strength and confidence in the defense of our national security. Uh, and I'm confident uh, that Republicans all around the country are going to stay true to those principles in the long term. There may be disagreements in our party here and there about how those principles are applied on any particular policy. Um, but if anybody needed a reminder, the chickens coming home to roost from Barack Obama's failed foreign policies uh, is as clear a reminder as we could ever hope or fear to have. Oh, well, fair enough. Uh, let me ask you last question, unless there's something you want to bring up. Uh, the president is um, uh, has put in place PPD 28, which was meant after Snowden to reassure our allies that there were special security, uh, privacy protections even for foreigners who were caught up in our uh, surveillance. Uh, it doesn't seem to have had much impact on foreign criticism. What's your sense about its impact on the intelligence community? Well, it's just one example of how uh, President Obama has gone beyond the requirements of most statutes and imposed heightened restrictions in this and other realms. In my opinion, is making our intelligence uh, agencies less effective, that's hamstringing them, that's tying them up in all kinds of bureaucratic processes and reports, and frankly not winning that much goodwill around the world. As I said earlier, we shouldn't gratuitously intrude on the privacy of anyone, especially citizens of core allies like NATO country, uh, countries, for instance, or the Five Eyes Partners. But at the same time, foreigners don't have constitutional rights under our system. Uh, and I'm more concerned about the right of Americans to live uh, than I am concerned about the privacy rights of foreigners. Yeah, that, fair enough. Uh, I, when, when, as we finish these things, we usually ask our guests if they've got any speaking engagements or uh, uh, appearances in primaries that we should know about. <laughs> uh, any any upcoming uh, 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 events you'd like our listeners to know about? No, nothing planned right now. I'm just going to keep keep doing my work here in the Senate, plugging away. Well, you're the youngest mem member of the Senate and uh, the surely one of the brightest stars not running for president. So we've got well, an opportunity to... Uh, being uh, the youngest member of the Senate is a low bar to clear. <laughs> if I'm a, if I'm not a, running for president, it seems to be pretty low. Yeah, if I'm a bright star, it just goes to show how dark our firmament is. <laughs> well, thank you very much. This was a, a real pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Stuart. All right. One last point, and I want to uh, uh, say a special thank you to uh, Voodoo821 and um, Planet Beef, 
because we have now been reviewed. Our reviews of, uh, have made the uh, iTunes review list, and uh, we are averaging five stars for our podcast. Uh, so thanks to Planet Beef. Pl- thanks to Voodoo 821. If you are in the D.C. area, uh, in February, we will be having a uh, another one of our live uh, podcasts with an audience, uh, probably at the firehouse again. Uh, and um, uh, if you come up to me, uh, I will buy you a beer personally for uh, your getting us over the hump with iTunes. Uh, uh, Thanks, Michael Vadis. Thanks, Maury Shank. As always, the, we're open to feedback in addition to uh, five-star reviews. Send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates, topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave a message at 202-862-5785. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 96 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Coming up, uh, we'll be joined by John Lynch, Glenn Gerstel, and David Chris of Intellectual Ventures and formerly uh, of the National Security Division. We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and governance.